0: Every joke is a tiny revolution, said George Orwell, and each week comedian Tiff Stevenson interviews fellow comics such as Nish Kumar and Sarah Pascoe about the power of comedy to disrupt. Imagine a custard pie splatting into a human face forever. Find Tiny Revolutions wherever you find podcasts and at lushplayer.com. Hello and welcome to the John Rob Tapes. And this episode, I speak to John Ronson about his latest book, his stand-up tour, and he really opens up and talks about himself and his inner soul. See, we've known each other an awful long time, actually, haven't we? About 30-odd uh, years, haven't we? Yeah.
1: It? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have such memories of you at the boardwalk in Manchester, just kind of before, just before the whole Manchester thing hit and we kind of knew, well I say we knew that something was going, going on, you knew that something was going on, I was completely oblivious to it. In fact, can I just tell you, I just remembered something, I was in the Frank Sidebottom tour van one night and somebody had a cassette of the Stone Roses' forthcoming album uh, and he put it on and everyone was sitting around going, oh my god, you know, this is unbelievable <laughs> and, and and I was sitting there thinking like, silently thinking but too ashamed to say I have no idea if this is good or bad like I just, I just don't know <laughs> and I realised and now of course I know how good it was yeah. but but it made me realise that I was like way more musically illiterate than people like you who, who were you know like Aww. fantastically on top of it all
0: Maybe I was lucky that the stuff I liked would Mm -hmm. connect with people. I mean, because you were quite involved in the music scene, weren't you? You managed a band called Manfred Del Monte. Mm -hmm. He was
1: a a talented guy. Oh, super talented. He now lives in... uh, New Orleans? No, no, he was in New Orleans until the um, Hurricane Katrina. And then they moved, everything got destroyed, and they moved up to Lawrence, Kansas. So they now live in Lawrence, Kansas. Wow, I've well, been there. Right. So, and, and also, you, you wrote as well, didn't you? you, used to write for sounds. You were like my understudy. Yeah, yeah.
0: honestly, my, my early
1: career is really indelibly entwined with, with you. <laughs> yeah,
0: City Life, Local Listings Magazine. And that was all the first kind of writing you'd done, is not it?
1: Yeah, what happened was, I was writing from a college newspaper back in London, and, um, and uh, my lecturer, David Cardiff, his name was, took me out for a coffee and said this when I was maybe 19. And he said, you're the only person on the college newspaper who knows how to write. And, and I thought, wow, you know, like this was the first time somebody had actually sort of looked me in the eye and basically gave me career advice. So then when I moved to Manchester to work with bands, because I became the social secretary, and so I'm, that's how I met Frank Sidebottom at the manfred Del Monte, and they both pretty much simultaneously invited me to move to Manchester to work with them. Um, But, yeah, so then when I was there, I started working for City Life magazine just to make some extra money, and it just became kind of really clear that I was much better suited for the writing world than the music Mm. world. The Monte were a really, really good band who I feel failed to thrive uh, because I was their manager and I, (laughs) and I I just wasn't good enough at it.
0: I just think they're the wrong place at the wrong, wrong time. Wrong time. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I'm being too self-deprecating. Manchester took off. If it hadn't been Manchester, they would have slipped in a James Slipstream, wouldn't they?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the family tree was the Smiths gave birth to James and then James was all ready to give birth to the from Del Monte. But... You know, the Rose, the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays came along at exactly that time, and then it became perceived as a kind of class thing that like the Roses and the Mondays were seen to be like working class, and the Mumford and was were seen to be middle class, which was ridiculous because we all lived in exactly the same houses, flats, basically, in the same parts of town. I actually lived next door twice to different members of the Stone Roses. I lived well, I lived next door, but one to Rennie in Gorton. I've been um, there. Right, yeah. right, 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 and, yeah. and then I lived literally next door to Manny, the bass player. In um, in Rusham, mm. um, so it's ridiculous to, to sort of divide us class. Village
0: Manchester, it's everyone's in the same pot, weren't they? Mm,
1: exactly. But so that's, the, yeah, but that's what happens. This is your ground. This is where you're learning your craft. You learn about writing. Yeah, what? And writing and, and but also just being with interesting, eccentric, you know, mysterious people. Mm. Um, I remember I, I started presenting when the man Del Monte fired me. Uh, Terry Christian, of all people, took me under his wing and got me a job. As his little assistant on the show, wasn't it? Like, yeah. The, the guy he could talk to on his radio show, I guess. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, on this local Stockport station, KFM. And Craig Cash was there and Carolina Hearn was there. I mean, you know, amazing. That the, the other yeah.
0: scene, the parallel scene of the rising like,
1: Yeah, the the comedy, comedy yeah. and broadcasting. But what was really good was meeting both music and being on KFM. Introduced me, you know, to sort of interesting, eccentric, mysterious people, and you know, I would feel like like Alice through the Looking Glass. So, for instance, when I was on KFM, there was this. I, I used to get this kind of regular. I don't think I've ever told this story. I, I used to get this regular phone call from this sort of sultry-sounding woman, who was like flirting down the phone to me. I was only, I was like twenty, and then one night she invited me to a party. So I I thought, okay, and it was in um, uh, Chorlton. Not that that really matters. But um, I, was, I thought, well, I'll sit in the car and see what sort of people go in and out of this party and then I'll decide whether I'm about to well, go that's in. As, as nerdish as I thought
0: you would be. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I sat in the car and all of these, like, freak humans were <laughs> going in. And I thought, okay, I'll go in. So I went in and, and we started dating me and me in this I I remember she took me downstairs to her bedroom and I heard one of the party goers saying, there's Nicky taking another man down to her bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) And we started dating for about six months and she was like fantastically, but also, you know, unnervingly um, sort of, you know, nuts, for want of a better phrase. And it was like the, um, it was just, I felt like Alice's Looking Glass, you know, I had a very shitty um, childhood in terms of just like being alone and um, suddenly I found myself with all these amazing people. So you found it quite empowering, it brought you out of yourself. Yeah, yeah. and I, it made me realise that what I was really what I really wanted in my life was was mystery and that's what taught me to be a writer.
0: Mm. I mean, it's funny because when I knew at that time I, I, I never thought that you were as introverted as I realised years later I don't know why that's because it's Manchester and everyone's just dead friendly to everyone else. You don't assume that people are quite nervous or, yeah. or shy.
1: But... I was really nervous in Manchester. I thought everyone was kind of better than me. Like, like I'd come from London. Well, I'd come from Cardiff and then London and I'd gone up to this place, Manchester, where everybody seemed so together and cool. And, and often, not you, but other people, a bit kind of standoffish, you know, because I was a southerner. And, yeah, I felt very... You know, I had a big, the whole time I lived in Manchester, I had quite a big inferiority complex. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: But I like, that. I like the way you've used that as a tool, really. You know, the way you write and the way you interview people is mm. quite disarming, isn't it? Because you actually, most of the time in interviews, the, the interviewee or the interviewer takes a kind of aggressive role like this. Mm. <laughs> but you kind of do it like that. Yes. You, you pull it out of them. So do you deliberately tap into your sort of nerdish 15-year-old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, well, I just, I think it's just always there, you know? Follow, it just follows you, you know, the 15-year-old runs and <laughs> just follows me around wherever I go, into new rooms, meeting new people. Do, do you
0: find that it's actually quite, a, I mean, I don't, it's, it's, it's not as cynical as it sounds, but do you find it quite a good tactic or a way of working or a way of getting things from people in interview situations?
1: Um, no, because it is just who I am. It's just real. You know, what, what I've managed to do, so I'm, I'm doing a lot to my hair. Um, what I've learned over like 30 years is I've gone from being a persona to, to, to a person. So I think the, the me that's now in my stories is, is actually who I am, as opposed to some sort of slightly exaggerated or heightened you know, version of me, which I would probably have done you know, 20 years ago. Because you were nervous? So. Uh, yeah, or maybe just because I didn't have the confidence or, or intelligence to really work out what my voice was. Um, so when I was starting out, I was emulating people like P.G. O'Rourke and, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and people like that.
0: Sort of gonzo journalism. Yeah. it just takes, story. Yeah.
1: yeah. It just, and then when I was starting making documentaries, I suppose I was kind of really inspired by Nick Broomfield and Michael Moore. And it just took me a while to figure out exactly what my voice was. And it's not that different. Well, I suppose it is quite different actually from all we of them. Broomfield, people.
0: Michael Moore, they, they they have that American confidence, don't they? They have those booming voices. Yeah, and, well, and, actually, Broomfield's quite, British, yeah.
1: yes to Michael Moore, but Broomfield's more sort of polite. But he, he
0: acts like an American, doesn't he? Um, I
1: think. He's certainly quite, a bit like Louis through. They're more sure of how they see the world, I think, than I am. So Louis, I'm, I'm you know, I've. I'm a you know really big fan of Louis, I, I, and I watched his opiate, opioid documentary the other night, which I thought was you know amazing. A very similar style, similar but style, coming from but, a different angle. I think the difference is that Louis is probably a bit more. Um, he goes into a situation. He doesn't mind telling people if if he thinks they're wrong. Mm. So he's a bit more sort of combative. I like to slide into a situation with no judgment. Judge, judgmental, that's the word I'm looking for. I think Louis, Louis and Nick Broomfield are both a, a little bit more judgmental than I am. I try and take judgment completely out of the equation because I think if your head is filled with judgment, there's no room for curiosity yeah. or, you know, um, sort of empathy. So I suppose that's the difference between us. But,
0: yeah, but I, I think that's totally the art of your craft, to uh, go to the darkest the dark side but not go in there with any... Level of judgment, like you're saying. Mm. So, so you read, so you read an interview you don't, Well, you see the interview you do with Katie Hopkins. You know,
1: yeah.
0: uh, <clears throat> sort of national, uh, probably going to be number one. But you find an, an empathy, humanity in there, which I find quite fascinating.
1: Although I think she was playing me a little bit. Um, I left well, my, yeah, yeah. I left my time with Katie Hopkins thinking I have convinced her to be a little bit more liberal. And turns out I hadn't convinced her that. <laughs> she got much worse afterwards. So, who
0: was pl- so you playing her and she was playing you? Or?
1: No, I think I was genuinely trying to figure her out. Mm. You know, she had just done that column where she called migrants cockroaches and basically said and she look, wouldn't mind... At a low point. Yeah and, yeah, and said she wouldn't mind if they drowned. And, and I looked at that and I thought, you know, this is like somebody... Um, Cut, cut. It felt to me like it was somebody, like it was almost like an act of self destruction like here 's somebody cutting the brakes in their own car mm. um, because she 'd done like a few pretty brutal, horrible things just before that yeah she, she struck me as like a spree killer growing increasingly frenzied <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so that 's why I wanted to interview I was like well what 's going on? Why would someone want to do this like make themselves such a hate figure and say such terrible things and um, so I interviewed her four times, once a week for four weeks, uh, just to try and get inside her head and- I, How far, how far did you get inside? Well, I mean, I, I remember one thing, at one point I got out the psychopath checklist, not necessarily because I thought she was a psychopath, but because I think that the 20 questions on, the 20 items on that checklist are quite a good way to interview someone um, because they can take you to places where, you know, you would never normally go. So these are items like, because I wrote a book about psychopaths, so these are items like cunning manipulative or glib superficial charm. So I would then say to Katie Hopkins, you know, would you say that you're, you know, that you're superficially charming? You know, I'd ask questions that you wouldn't normally think to ask people. And yeah, I got there. She said at one point, I identify with that murderer thing where you just click off. I remember she said that at one Mm. point. You know what, I did get somewhere with her. I just remembered at one point she gave me the most incredible speech about all her humiliations over the years. There's a um, there's a great American psychologist called James Gilligan, who says all violence is an attempt to replace shame with self-esteem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the
0: empowerment of violence.
1: Yeah. When you've got a gun in somebody's face, they give you respect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put that to Katie Hopkins and she gave me like a litany of all the times that she'd felt shamed and humiliated and how it makes her skin thicker and thicker and thicker. And I thought that was a very telling, sort mm-hmm. of revealing moment. So when you get an answer like that and you're locked in a, an interview situation and you're asking the
0: 20 psychopath questions, I mean, how, how much does that relate back to you? I mean, you, when you're asking those questions, you're thinking, hang on a minute, uh-huh. I'm, I'm a psychopath as well. You know, when I was writing The Psych...
1: I have so much anxiety that the um, thought of me possibly being a psychopath like never crossed my mind. But one, th- but when The Psychopath Test came out, I have had so many people saying to me, like, oh, my God, I was reading a book and I was thinking, oh, my God, that must mean that I'm a psychopath. Like, oh, my God, I identified that trait to myself. I'm a psychopath. And then, it get- then they say they get to the bit in the book where I say that if you're worried... If you're reading this and, and you're worried that you're a psychopath, that means you're not one, because psychopaths never worry. <laughs> like, <would> <laughs> is, is that the get-out?
0: Question 20.
1: Yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you're worried that you might be a psychopath, that means you can't be one. Um, it's, so, yeah, no, it really surprised me that there were, like, so many people wandering around thinking they might be psychopaths after reading my book. I, I, I didn't realise that. Much.
0: But how much of, of, of your writing and your fascination in that, those
1: kind of parts of human psyche is actually putting yourself on... You know, the couch? Oh, a lot, especially the most recent thing I've done. In fact, I'm doing a live tour at the moment where I am more personal than I've ever been, like, by far, Uh, because I had a little mini sort of two-week breakdown in January. Um, And the whole time through it, I was just... I I was kind of making notes. Um, And so this live tour that I'm doing at the moment, I actually talk a little bit about that, so it's, like, super personal.
0: I mean, are you up to have breakdowns? Or no, first yeah. time ever. Yeah.
1: First, I mean, I've had anxiety my whole life. but Yeah, first, first well, first. social anxiety. So, this- definitely social anxiety. Also, you know, I catastrophize. And so if I can't get my wife on the phone and I immediately go to her, well, she's obviously dead. Um, uh, the other thing I think I have actually is, is what's called scrupulosity. Um, this is new. And I think this is part of the reason for my little breakdown. Um, scrupulosity is defined, about, is defined as having excessive concern for moral or religious issues. And it's quite common in anxiety. And it's why I, I have always saw, seen anxiety as like a disease of moral goodness. You know, because I, I get very nervous about like, doing the wrong thing, like making a mistake, making a sort of ethical transgression. So, that, I, so those are those are my three main anxieties. So, so
0: that kind of feeds into your concerns about Twitter, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's also frustration, though. It's like you know um, that uh, you know people people have been bullies, mm. and um, anyone who was bullied at school. If you were bullied at school, it can take you down a few different alleys. It could, I think if you have if you get really badly bullied at school. Can possibly make you narcissistic because you are so, you've got so much pain inside of you. You sort of cut it off and lash out, or it, it can, you know, make you sort of very empathetic. and And, and I think, you know, that's what happened with me. Uh, it's like, were, were you bullied at school? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like I can't bear to see the self-righteous bullying. That's that. That really bugs me legitimise bullying. When you're bullied, it's funny, I had this conversation with Monica Lewinsky, um, who I've become, friend, I've become friends with lots of shamed people since my book came yeah. out. It's shame people sort of attract each other. Yes, and, and there's a good reason for it because the cure for shame is empathy. So if you've been through a really bad experience, you will seek out people who've gone through the same experience because that helps you recover. Um, so you were empathetic to each other? Or is, yeah, or but, I mean, how no, she was... Is there a... a lead empathy in her? Well, with me and Monica, like, she definitely was a lot more shamed than I've ever <laughs> yeah. been. Um, my, my shaving has been very, very slight. Yeah. I, enough to know what but it be like. But probably enough to make you feel... Oh, yeah. Especially, especially oh. with all
0: the other things. If you're going to ca-
1: catastrophise, mm.
0: I suppose the slightest bit of shame would feel like the worst piece of shame ever for yes. you, Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's
1: exactly what happened. You know, when my shaming book came out... Um, you know, a small number of people became very verbally, kind of, you know, opposed to it. I've got to say, without having read it, um, because they were opposed to the idea of it. Because actually, the book's really impeccable and kind of. So, what, what were they opposed? That, that um, public shaming is uh, is one of the few weapons that are open to marginalised communities. And so if I'm attacking public shaming, I'm attacking marginalised communities. OK. It's um, convoluted. But it is convoluted. There is an
0: argument there, I suppose. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. But, you know, if my book had been a polemic, then they would have had a right to, to be upset. But it's not a polemic. It's a nuanced, thoughtful, you know, uh, journey through questions like that. Um, so that's why it kind of bugged me. But but yeah, it was a very, very small number of people, probably a couple of hundred people. But, it, you know, and, and otherwise the book was hugely well regarded and yet, sure, I saw it as like the end of the world.
0: Yeah, the, the one bad review that yeah. you memorise. Yeah. yeah. Out of a hundred great reviews. Yeah. I mean, when, when you go in deep like that, I and mean, that's, that's a deep thing to go into in your own personal psyche, lots of other people's personal psyches. I mean, how much a sense of responsibility do you have? And how, how hard is it to go there?
1: Very hard, and yes, and increasingly so as I get older. I've really noticed that. Like, I think it's much better to be... Well, for me, it's much better to, to be a journalist at, you know, at 50 than at 30, because at 30, you're, you're ambitious. You're trying to make your way in the world, and that's going to make you less empathetic because mm-hmm. it's going to make you more self-centred. But now, you know... Particularly because I've had, like, you know success, I don't need to worry about that stuff anymore, so I can really dwell on you know, the, the, the ethics of, mm. of what one does. Um, so yes, the, the public shaming book I wrote and this podcast I just bought out, which is the one I'm touring at the moment, called "The Last Days of August," are, are very much about. The, the kind of ethical responsibilities of journalists. Not
0: also, the personal thing. You know, I mean, not, not all the books. I mean, mm. yeah, you know, no. Man and Stare Goats is no, not, not a personal trip. It's a different. It's, yeah. it's a fascination with the oddness mm-hmm. of, of the world. Yeah. But the books where you go into this kind of the flickering shadows of the psyche, and, and yourself and these other people. Yeah. I mean, do you work yourself out there? You've, you kind of.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say there's a catharsis. If there was a catharsis, I'd be happier. <laughs> but, um, but I would. But yes, I'd say it's it, there's a sort of self-analysis going on, and there's a little bit of a catharsis, I suppose. Mm. There is a bit of one. Yeah, it's um, not a
0: screaming catharsis, is it? It's, uh, no, it's, it's like quite gentle.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But so yes, absolutely, I'd say, it, especially the most recent stuff, especially the last days of August, and so you've been publicly shamed. I'd say those two books are, are very sort of self-analytical. And I'm, I'm the psychopathist, actually.
0: Another thing I was fascinated by, the way you kind of talk and the way you do podcasts and the way you write, it's, it's, it's a gentle voice tackling very, very big subjects. In a world where everybody shouting really loudly,
1: mm. you talk very quietly, but somehow say yeah. things louder. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm surprised, especially in this country. Uh, you know, it's, everything is quite knee-jerk adversarial, I think. Mm. It's, well, yeah, now, because of the internet, because of Twitter, like yeah. all the things you talk
0: about... Everybody everybody thinks they're right and everything's black or white. There's no exactly. middle ground. And you're operating in that
1: middle space. Yeah, and, and, it's, and then people don't like, you know, some people um, think that's weak. That's like a weakness because, you know, in this day and age, you have to be mm. there or there. Um, and, you know, being in the middle, is, not in the middle, that's the wrong word, just being curious, mm. you know, cu- curiosity, because I wouldn't call myself like a centrist, but, you know, because I'm, I'm you know, fundamentally on the left, but um, but being curious and, and being open and to hear, hearing people's voices and hearing people's experiences, that is often these days considered a weakness.
0: Yeah, and that thing where seeking empathy, um, not being judgmental, mm. that, that's not very 21st century and I'm quite fascinated by that.
1: Yeah, it's really not. And, and I, you know, but I think you need, I think the well, world, you need people like who do what, what we do. Mm. Um, you know, we're we're another ingredient.
0: Yeah, and on that journey, you uh-huh. you go to things that are quite, quite extreme, quite odd places, odd people doing really bizarre things. There's it's, it's a fascination with these kind of the fringes of society, isn't there? Yeah. Because um, I remember, like years ago, you're always you're one of those uh, nerds who's into Charles Manson, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. That was stupid, that was so
1: like
0: <laughs> Well, But there was, there was a sign yeah. there where you're gonna go next. You know yeah. But fascination people kind of go off the edge yes. to another place. But in a way it's kind of saying there is no normality. Yes, like Nothing is normal, everything is weird really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, the, the difference I think between me and, and some of the people who do that kind of thing is that I'm not there to, you know, poke fun at them, to be superior to them, to be judgmental. I'm there because I think we're all damaged And, you know, we're all a mess and let's, you know, so I I feel like I'm going into those situations as like, on like a level playing field. Um, And and I think that's why, you know, the porn stories that I've just done, the Butterfly Effect in the last days of August, I, I strongly feel that, you know, I just did a, I did a porn podcast not long ago. And the first question, it was a porn star, was the podcaster And her first thing she said to me was, you know, thank you for humanising us. Mm. And I said, well, that's, you know, crazy that you have to thank me for humanising you. You know, you're human. But the fact is, it's true. Like, people, everyone goes into the porn world with some sort of agenda, some ideology. And it's really, really rare for somebody to go in just curious and wanting to learn and and, and be empathetic and be non-judgmental. So, um, yeah, so I think that's the difference between me and some other people who, who kind of work in those kinds of areas? That I'm not in the slightest bit um, superior to them. So when you tackle something like
0: porn, what's your angle? What's your take on it? I mean, obviously, yes, you're not being judgmental on it. It's there. So
1: it's kind of saying, why is it here? Or is it just saying, no, it's different to that? I, I would, I would never do. I want to do porn now, or I want to do this. Like it, there always has to be like a sort of in, intriguing inner story.
0: So what was it in the
1: story that pulled you in? Uh, it was, well, two things. Uh, first, when I was writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed, um, I met my first ever porn star in the lobby of a, of the, uh, of a hotel in Los Angeles. Um, so the receptionist phoned and said, your guest is waiting for you downstairs. So I went downstairs and everyone in the lobby was dressed, you know, exactly how I dressed, like in sort of shapeless, you know, shapeless hoodies. And, um, except for Princess Donna who was dressed like a kind of great mad peacock. Yeah. Very tight dressed and looked like a porn star. So in character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe she'd come. I, well, I didn't realise at the time and now I realise is that that's actually very rare, like porn stars. Don't dress like porn stars. But for some reason, she, she was. Maybe she was coming from a job or something, I don't yeah. know. So, but as I walked towards her, um, I looked over at the receptionist and he was looking at her and the look on his face was one of total contempt. And I thought, I bet you'd be comfortable with her if she was on your laptop, mm. but not in your vicinity. So that was one thought, that look which it's I... It's the duality. Yeah, hypocrisy and cognitive dissonance and, you know, a whole bunch of stuff must have been going on mm. in his head. You know, cognitive dissonance is when, you know, you, you find it painful to hold two opposing views in your head at the same time. Um... So then I started reading, like, porn blogs. I was sort of interested in knowing about their lives. And the thing that was really bugging many, many porn people was how Pornhub had basically robbed them of their livelihood. And, and Pornhub wasn't created by porn people. It was created by tech bros, who were basically... Te- and tech bros are basically considered reputable. Less so now, but more or more, three years ago. Whereas porn people are considered disreputable. And oh, so it's I,
0: almost like they deserve to have their money taken from them.
1: Yeah, or we don't yeah. want, not so much that to say, but we don't want to know. Like, we don't want to know because if we, we don't want to know about their lives because we have to objectify them. Mm. So all of that became really interesting to me. So that, that's what brought, brought me into it. So was there like almost a naivety of people who are poor,
0: from, from porn stars? They're entering into this thing, but they don't really understand how they're going to end up five, ten years down the line.
1: That's definitely the case. And, and it's very often because of the hypocrisy of outsiders. So one example, I met a guy called Dale DeBone, um, who was in porn for ages, left, became a nurse, um, found, really found his calling as a nurse, you know, he was a great nurse. Um, and then one day, because of Pornhub, like before Pornhub came along, if you wanted, if you chanced upon a Dale DeBone porn film, you would have had to have made the effort to go to a DVD store. You know, it's a lot of effort. Now, all of Dale DeBone's films, just like everybody else's films, are right there for free, pirated on Pornhub. Mm. Um, so Dale DeBone, suddenly, because of Pornhub, became much more recognisable, so he was called into the HR department and fired. Uh, mm. Because they said, if you... Uh, if anybody ever makes a claim of sexual harassment against you, like any of our patients, uh, you would immediately lose. Yeah, because his case is
0: be difficult to prove, I guess. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, you know, very often the, the bad lives of porn people are because of the, the hypocrisy of outsiders. And I say hypocrisy because, you know, almost everybody watches porn. Mm. Um, uh, August Ames... Who I made my second porn st- season about uh, is a porn star who who died. Um, last time I checked on her porn, bio page, have almost nobody reported her death. Like almost no one.
0: Because she doesn't actually exist
1: off yeah. camera. Whereas Pornhub has her video view count on that one site alone. Last time I checked, her videos had been viewed 585 million times. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody. Covered her death. And by the way, her porn, her bio has her in the present tense. Still alive. Oh, OK, yeah. yeah, yeah. kept her alive. That's really odd.
0: But yeah. that, that's a reflection of pop culture and nobody dies in pop culture, do they?
1: Yeah, that's very true.
0: Would you say porn is the only um, honest pop culture in a weird way? You know, like pop music and film is porn porn as well, isn't it? Soft porn. Right. Well,
1: although porn isn't, porn isn't. I mean, that's sort of um, kind of athletes. So I'd say that's not, I'd say porn isn't really real either. Because, you know, you No, I'm going to say it was, it's realer, but more
0: honest. I, this is what it is, this is what it does, this, you know. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um,
1: yes. It's not great. pretending to be art, it you, just is what it is. Yeah, that, yeah, that's very true. But it's still, it is still art. Um, in in that, um, for a start, it's, it's, you know, as I say, it's like athletics. It's like you've got to be as good at sex as... You know those. You know when you used to go to the Royal Tattoo and you'd have like fifteen people on top of one motorbike. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Interesting parallel. <laughs> um, um, yeah.
0: So, so what, what do the investigation into porn, What do you think it tells? T- what does it tell you about society and modern society?
1: Oh, so much. Um, as, I, as I said before, I think one thing the story really tells you is about how we should sometimes rethink who we should consider reputable and who we should consider disreputable. I found the porn community, um, when I was making the first show, The Butterfly Effect, a very supportive um, band of outsiders, you know, caring for each other, whereas the tech bros didn't give a flying fuck. Mm. When I made The Last Days of August though, which is a much darker porn story, you know, about the death of a porn star, you know what, I really learned? Somebody asked me this on stage a couple of nights ago. And, and you know, one thing I really learned, and this will sound a bit odd um, I never sort of see the world in terms of gender because I think that there's bigger differences between individuals than there are between genders. Um, and that fits in my worldview that we shouldn't be ideological. And I hate that fucking all women are great and all men are terrible. You know, I, you know, I hate that shit but The Last Days of August kind of is a story about gender. You know, the women in that story behave very differently to the men in that story. In in what kind of ways? Well, the men are dismissive, emotionally withdrawing, in denial about the bad things that can happen to women on porn sets. whereas the women seem to be very concerned about making sure that the men don't feel bad about themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So a very clichéd idea of masculinity and femininity. That story, you know, I went into that story without any ideology at all, because I'm not ideological, really. And yet, that's the story that I found. I found a feminine. I found a story that', that in an ideological in the context of making a film about Paul, or, or generally. Well, I try and certainly in terms of storytelling, I always try and not be ideological because mm. because i I feel that that clashes with with telling human stories. Um, but the last days of August is a really good example of me going in to tell a human story, which turns out to be very ideological, similar, ideologically similar to, you know, what some feminists would say. So, you know, it, it became like a feminist story, but without me planning that. So, so all
0: the ideologies, the, the,
1: edge, the edges are blurred, aren't they? People, get, people are actually going to places they did not expect they would go to. Yeah, if you're too ideological, that means you have a thesis, that means you're a bit close to, you know, how could the story unfold? You're not properly listening. You know, I, this is why I'm really against ideology and storytelling. I mean, as a human, I'm, I have ideologies. Um, you know, I, I believe in certain things. As I say, you know, I'm, I'm much more on the left than I am on the right. Although there's certain things on the right that that I, I do agree with, but, but you know, primarily I'm very much on the left. So, so as soon as you get behind a camera, get on a stage, get behind the laptop, you drop all this in. And... Um, well, when I'm editing. Yeah, I mean, yes, when I'm writing or whatever, like I, yes, I I get rid of any prejudgment, any ideology, uh, always, because I want to meet people as as humans. I mean, and it does make me a little naive at times. I remember years ago when I was living in in London, um, I said to my next door neighbour, you know, I'm making this like documentary about a religious cult, and the leader is being so... So mean to me, and my neighbour said, "Why does this always surprise you?" <laughs> you, know, <laughs> like, uh, yes. you know, like, "Oh my God, I've just been with the Ku Klux Klan, and they were bastards." <laughs> <laughs> but I sort of think you need—I I kind of think you need that. Yeah, um, you need that. You, you need that openness. Because you went—you
0: went to the Ku Klux Klan. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, I've been with the. Which Klan. was
0: your scariest moment to think?
1: Actually. The clan themselves weren't that scary. The people who were really scary were this skinhead group called Aryan Nations. They, they were fucking terrifying, and I think I was at literal risk. Yeah, Didn't day. you get out of your car they all surrounded you? Yes, and, and asked, basically asked me if I was Jewish. Yeah. And I said, no. <laughs> Jewish? <laughs> me? Come on, you guys! <laughs> <laughs> I guess they weren't that great
0: at uh, no, detectives, exactly. were they?
1: <laughs> well, actually, one of them diffused the situation. A slightly older one diffused the situation. And to this day, I don't know whether he did it you know, just to be nice or um, at the time there was a lot of infiltration into extremist groups by American law enforcement. And mm. um, Part of me has always wondered whether the person who sort of saved my hide that day might have been like an undercover agent or something. Okay, yeah, yeah, so it's like a triple bluff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I've no <laughs> idea. But it, but it definitely crossed my mind. Knowing, like, how how many age, undercover officers you would get in clans. And, and, yeah, you know, with shoe, two clean shoes on. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so, so when something like that happens, it's almost like gold for you, you Near know, that moment where you're in a very heavy situation, a very black and white, ironically, situation... Mm-hmm. And there's a tiny little crumb of humanity. Yeah, is, is that what you're looking for?
1: Yes. Although more often now, I, I won't go to like. As, as it happens, I am about to do another Nazi story. There's a particular Nazi story that I'm going to do this year, but but I tend not to go to like extreme places like that anymore. Um, is that because you got a, you've got a wife and a kid? You know, you've you've got there's more to carry around now. It's um, not just you as in. Uh, possibly, I, I I'm less keen to put myself in danger than I used to be. Mm. But it's understandable. Yeah, which is understandable. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's not the sort of conscious reason. The conscious reason is that I'm trying more and more to tell stories that aren't far away in the fringes. So, for instance, my book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, is about the cruelty that we do to us. Mm. It's not oh, a, So you don't
0: have to go to the Ku Klux to find cruelty. You can go to your next door neighbour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or to
1: yourself. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's more rewarding to tell stories in our world somehow and i think so you've been publicly shamed is really a story that's set in our world i think the last days of august too is it might be in the porn community but it's really a story about us about our world mm. um and i find that more definitely more rewarding these days that, that's
0: really the strength of your work really it's, it's not just like look at these freaks yeah exactly know, it's the freaks there's it's joined on it, and it's a mirror that reflects back on you as well. Yes. As a reader,
1: when I was only doing stories in like really far away communities, like clan, you know, meetings and so on, a little bit of me always felt like this isn't perfect. This this isn't exactly. So, what It's almost doing. like a voyeurism, a tourism. No, just like, why do I have to go to some extreme place to get good, you know, to get material? Mm. I'd read like Nairnby novels. And he would be making these like gripping novels set in like the Starbucks and the Angel, mm. and I was thinking, you know why do I have to go to a clan meeting to get good stuff? you know <laughs> why can't I be more like nicornby like isn't that't that, uh, isn't that a, um, a a better art mm. um, So yeah, so I think the stuff I've been doing the last six, seven years is more like that it's more about our, so it's, our world It's
0: definitely a way the your way work, your work has definitely changed over the years. So yeah. initially it was, I guess when you're younger, you're always fascinated with the darkest thing possible or, yeah. or the wildest or the brightest or whatever.
1: I like going into Nikki's party, you know, wanting to go to a, you know, mysterious place full of crazy, mysterious people, you know, like, like you would be really, I remember one time I was at Broadmoor um, and um, I was sitting there and I turned to like the nurse and I said, God, I can't believe I'm inside Broadmoor. I feel so privileged. And the nurse looked at me and he said, um, we've got a spare bed if you like. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I used to feel yeah. so privileged and still do to yeah. get to go to places where people don't normally get to go. So that's part of it as well. There's still, there's still
0: an excitement in there of, of that. Yes.
1: Yeah. 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 I still feel that excitement.
0: So so, so how, I mean, obviously you say your school days are difficult, but how, how much does your Jewishness feed into this to make you feel slightly on the outside
1: or does it maybe it doesn't? Yeah, sort of, honestly, you know. not not much. Like I, the school I went to in Cardiff um, had quite a lot of Jews. I mean, it was a relatively tough school. It wasn't as tough as the other comprehensives around, but it was still a pretty tough school, um, but there was quite a lot of Jews there. And as a consequence, I never experienced any anti-Semitism. Like, amidst my bullying, it was never anti-Semitic bullying. There's all the reasons. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, and in some ways, you know, I don't want to be like victim blaming of myself, but I, I was, you know, an awkward kid, like, you know. Um, but, and honestly, I've, I've experienced very little anti-Semitism in my life. It's the only real anti-Semitism I feel like I've, I've experienced in my whole life has been in very recent times, the last couple of years, and it's from Corbyn fans. (laughs) And I'm sorry that that, that's like an unpleasant truth, but it is the truth. Mm. It's the truth, you know? I'll give you just one example. Uh, Half an hour after the Pittsburgh shooting, where I can't remember, 11, 13 Jews were were gunned down, um, I got a tweet from a Corbyn fan saying, see, that's anti-Semitism. like, oh, thanks for not killing me. You know, thanks for only telling me to constantly renounce Israel. And my point about that is I've been to Israel uh, in my entire life. I have spent three days in Israel. Uh, Once when I was 11 and I was on a school cruise and once when I was doing a story for The Guardian and I spent two days there. Um, So I feel as akin to Israel as I do to Marrakesh. (laughs) And... um,
0: Oh, and this is used as a little stick to beat you with. Oh, constantly. Yeah, yeah. I've
1: been told over and over again, like, you know, you should be forced to renounce Israel. So I would say, like, forced how so? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other thing I say is, you know, would you, would you say to a Muslim, you must be, you know, why aren't you renouncing the Saudi regime? Why aren't you renouncing ISIS? Would you say to a Catholic, why aren't you renouncing the IRA? Yeah, yeah it's okay. It feels okay to them to say it to jews
0: again another example of the black and white polarization uh-huh. of culture politics everything thinking yeah goes on there's no there's no gray middle ground there's no gray middle yeah. ground is it actually <laughs> i believe this
1: is green that's not green is that's it grey. it's kind of gray yeah, hmm. yeah. um yeah so it, it you know and again the thing that really bugs me about that is it's self-righteous and it's they consider it legitimized
0: it's basically a statement and they don't listen to what you say back. Is that, is, is yeah. that More than what they're actually saying, is that the bit that really annoys you? Well,
1: well, also the fact that I think it is bigotry. Mm. You know, like I have never said... Nobody has... You know, no one has any idea what I feel about Israel. Like, no one has a clue. It's just, it's just assumed. Yes, yeah, just yeah. assumed that I'm one of those, you know...
0: Mm. You know... So it's, it's the opposite of the way you approach things. So you approach things, Yeah. Uh, non, when you go to something, to do a story, it's non-judgmental, you just see what the story is, what, what is
1: going on here. Mm. Total back, curiosity, yeah. total openness, whereas they just make a whole bunch of... Um, assumptions. Assumptions. And make them call them the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then they, um, uh, yeah, and then they, they, in their bubble, they're all like congratulating each other. And it becomes like a legitimised form of, of you know bigotry. Mm.
0: Well, yeah. whereas you you prefer the, the nuance, the confusion of of the humanity. That's what humans are, isn't it? You you may you may think you believe in something, but you you can't you can't be that bricked into one point of view, can it?
1: it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's because it's. I mean, a, it's not true. It's 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 pseudoscience. Mm. You know, it's mm. just not true.
0: Which has been the fascination of it runs as a theme through everything you've done from
1: the start, really. is it? It's both. You know, wanting to get to the factual truth of what something is, but, but, but doing it with curiosity and a lack of judgment. Or, or do you actually even say there is a truth? Um, sometimes there's a truth. Like, sometimes there is a truth. But does it not just move about a little bit? <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> you no, know, even if it's, yeah.
0: I don't know, the CIA, they're very stern like that. Yeah, but those but people, they still do
1: some weird shit. Yeah, that just uh, makes no sense. Yeah. 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 But I mean, there are like some things, I'm trying, I mean, some things are true, but yeah, some things are vague. Mm. And it's trying to be able to figure out. The know, vagueness
0: is fascinating. Though.
1: Vagueness is, I mean, the grey area. Yeah. You know, yeah. That people are very opposed to grey areas. You know, I, I say this, you know, in my various talks sometimes, that you know, but the truth about humans is that we're a mess. You know, we're good and bad. We're clever and stupid. Mm. We do good things and we make mistakes, which is why I get so annoyed when somebody is defined by a mistake, um, which is what happens all the time now on, on social media and context is considered a weakness. And then the way that they apologize is, is scrutinized. And, you know, it's, it's wrong for all sorts of reasons. And, and um, yeah, but the main reason is that why do we, we all know that we're, most people are a mixture of good and bad. Um, you know, there's some psychopaths out there, but most people aren't psychopaths. Um, uh, so, but, so it's like we're all pretending to ourselves and to everybody else that we don't know that that's true about humans and that acts, you know, because Twitter is a stage for constant artificial high drama where everyone's either a magnificent hero or a sickening villain. And I've been lucky that, you know, I tend to be, people tend to like me and not not dislike Mm -hmm. me. But in a, in, a, in a way, it's all part of the same problem. Because mm. if you treat somebody like a magnificent hero, it's very easy for them to become like a sickening villain.
0: Which happens all the time, that's Yeah,
1: it. The Twitter front line, isn't it? You know, whereas most people live in the, the grey area between hero and villain. Yeah, which is what you
0: documented for since you started, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for that, John. Robo okay. thank you. All right. Thank
1: you so much, John.
0: You've been listening to the John Robb Tapes with me, John Robb. Brought to you by Lush and Louder Than War and produced by Sophie Porter. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share. Thanks for listening. Chances are if you like this podcast, you'll like other podcasts made by Lush. So why not listen to the Lush podcast? It's a podcast. It's made by Lush. Hence the name. Find it where you find podcasts
1: usually on the internet.